It's always important to note when you're dealing with a gospel account to ask the question, does this account occur anywhere else? And it is the case that this account of Jesus walking on water recorded in Matthew 14 can also be found in the Gospel of Mark and additionally in the Gospel of John. The second thing we should note is that in all three of those accounts in the Gospels, this account of Jesus walking on the water always follows immediately after the account of Jesus miraculously feeding the 5,000 with a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. Now, of course, we want to marvel at the fact that Jesus could take five loaves of bread and two fish and miraculously turn that into enough food to sustain and to satisfy 5,000 people. But I will leave that sermon for another day. But for the moment, let us first think upon the fact that 5,000 people are following around Jesus in the first place. This is significant. I don't want to discount how happy I am that nearly 200 people show up here almost every Sunday morning. But imagine 5,000 people not showing up in the beautiful uh, Bahamian environment, not showing up in this beautiful historic church, but 5,000 people out in the middle of nowhere, uh, walking through the dusty roads of Palestine, following this teacher around. What's even more interesting is Matthew tells us in verse 13 that Jesus had actually withdrawn to a solitary place. What do you mean? He was trying to get away from people. He was trying to have some me time. He was trying to be by himself. But there was such excitement around his ministry that it was difficult for him to hide, difficult for him to have downtime. And so we see that even though he wanted a solitary place, 5,000 people followed him. Now there's very good reason for this. We have reason to believe that many among the 5,000 that followed him witnessed Jesus do some miraculous things. They had watched some marvelous displays of power, or maybe they had just heard from others the types of things that Jesus had done. Either way, there was a growing excitement around the ministry of Jesus. And undoubtedly the excitement swelled when he turned five loaves of bread and two fish into a meal for 5,000. The disciples evidently began to share the excitement for we read that after collecting 12 baskets of leftovers, the disciples weren't in a hurry to go anywhere. They knew they were on the inside of this group with Jesus, and so they were feeling pretty good that their master could do such amazing things. So they collected the leftovers, and they weren't ready to go anywhere. But Jesus wanted them to move along. Now in John's Gospel, there's another interesting detail that's included. We learn in John's Gospel that Jesus discerned that the crowd was so pumped up by what he had done that they were ready to make him king by force. Jesus, who had a keen sense 
for what people were thinking and planning, discern this. And he didn't want their messianic fervor to disrupt his own timetable. So even though the crowd wanted to forcibly make Jesus king, then and there, Jesus had other plans. He told his disciples, get in the boat, go to the other side, I'll meet you there. And then he dismissed the crowd. And he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Now I suspect that Matthew includes this note about dismissing the crowd to explain why the crowd didn't follow him this time to a solitary place. Because earlier in chapter 14, Jesus wants to go to a solitary place and 5,000 people follow him. So this time, Matthew points out that Jesus dismissed them. We don't know if he did that politely or if he just scrammed, go home, you've been following me for days, let me be. We don't know how he dismissed them, but he did so in such a forcible way or an authoritative way or a compelling way that they actually went away this time. So because the crowd finally went away, Jesus went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. I don't know about you, but I love reading an account like this. Where Jesus, the Son of God, regarded it to be of such importance that he have quiet time. That he have a solitary place in order to meet with his Father. I'm so encouraged by that. Because I sometimes think to myself, I've got too much to do. I've got too many responsibilities. I don't have time to pray. I will pray later. I will pray when I get these things done. But I'm just too busy to pray right now. Then I come to a passage like this. Jesus is feeding multitudes. Jesus is healing the sick. Jesus is doing miracle after miracle. But Jesus, the Son of God, is in a human body. And that body has grown tired and he needs rest. I note that Jesus could have continued to bless innumerable lives. He could have continued to bless innumerable lives had he remained with the crowd. If he hadn't sent the crowd away, but if he kept them nearby, he could have continued to bless them. But it obviously was more necessary for him to replenish his body, to replenish his spirit by spending time in solitude with his father. Friends, there is a clear lesson in that for you and for me. It's not as though, and and I know you are busy folks, but none of our to-do lists match the to-do list of Jesus. It doesn't matter how big a job you have, how many responsibilities you have. It doesn't matter how full your calendar is. There's no way your daily schedule is as busy as the schedule of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's healing paralytics. He's healing leopards. He's bringing dead people back to life. He's feeding thousands of people in a single sitting. It's not as though the things I do in a day can be compared to the things that Jesus did in a day. And so if Jesus needed time apart to pray to his Father, how 
much more do we need that time? How much more do we need time and solitude with our Father in Heaven? I think it's 11 a.m. every morning when that goes by. It must be on a schedule. Martin Luther, one of the busiest theologians that I've read about, Martin Luther had a wonderful phrase that I've become fond of. Martin Luther says, I'm too busy not to pray. I'm too busy not to pray. And the idea was that the busier Martin Luther got, the more he needed to pray. It's as if his times of ease and prosperity did not necessitate great lengths of time spent in prayer. But for Martin Luther, the more responsibility he had, the more things on his to-do list, the busier he was, the more he prayed. In our pursuit of Christ-likeness, let us not miss our Lord's regular habits of prayer. Let us not miss that he dismissed those he could have ministered to. Let us not miss that he dismissed even his closest companions in order that he might have time alone in solitude with his Father in heaven. Jesus prayed, but his disciples struggled. Jesus prayed in solitude, but his disciples struggled without him physically present. Matthew tells us that while Jesus prayed on a mountainside, the disciples were in a boat a considerable distance from land. And that boat was buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Now if you turn to Mark's account, you learn what kind of boat it was or you learn a little bit more because in Mark's account we learn that they're struggling with the oars. I mean some of you, when you hear the word boat, you're thinking of your boat with the big engines on the back. These guys are rowing their boat. I I mean that does not sound like a fun exercise any day of the week. And so the wind is against them, the waves are buffeting the boat, and their way of getting from one side of the lake to the other is by rowing. Now that sounds challenging enough for me. And then I read on and see in verse 25 that it was the fourth watch of the night. And we might just gloss over that. Oh, fourth watch, that's archaic language. I have no idea what that means. Well, the fourth watch of the night begins at 3 a.m. The level of exhaustion that disciples would have been experienced would, would have been off the charts. The thought of even being awake at 3 a.m. exhausts me. And I can't even comprehend what it would have been like to to row a boat in a sea that is rough at 3 a.m. We don't know for sure, but I wonder if Jesus would have been, been observing all of this. He was, of course, up on a mountainside. And the disciples were below at sea level. I wonder if there was a point when he broke from prayer with his father and he looked down. I don't know how many lights they would have had in the boat. But I wonder if he would have looked down and saw his disciples struggling. 
Jesus, finishing his time in prayer, realizes how late an hour it is, sees the duress of his followers, and so he goes out to them. It says in verse 25, he went out to them, walking on the water. And we go on and we read the disciples' reaction and we're probably not at all surprised by the way in which the disciples respond to what they see. It says quite clearly, and remember, this is Matthew's gospel. Matthew is one of the disciples. This is a first-hand account. And Matthew's saying, we were terrified. We saw this, this being walking on the waves and we were terrified. And when we said to one another and we said out loud, it's a ghost. There's a ghost walking along the water. Well, of course they'd think that. Because they're smart enough to realize that human beings can't walk on water. Human beings don't have the capacity to contradict the physical laws of the universe. So this theory of theirs that this is a ghost isn't a terrible theory. Except for the fact that the disciples of all people should have realized that Jesus was not your ordinary human being. The disciples of all people should have understood that Jesus had particular powers that allowed him to contravene the laws of nature. Jesus can see they're afraid. And he wants to calm their fears. And so he says to them, take courage. Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. I realize he says to Peter a little later on, why did you doubt? But he doesn't start like that. He starts with, it's me. Don't be afraid. Take courage. Now if we read on in Matthew, this is where we can start to get a little distracted. If we read on from here, uh, this is where you have that very interesting exchange between Jesus and Peter. Where Peter asked Jesus to invite him out on the water with him. Jesus, in turn, accepts uh, the, the invitation to call Peter, and he calls Peter, and out of the boat, Peter goes onto the water. And you probably already know this, entire sermons have been written on that little exchange between Peter wanting to go out on the water with Jesus. Entire sermons, and the outline almost always goes something like this. The rough sea represents the hardships in your life. And if you don't have a way to deal with the hardships in your life, you will sink to the bottom of the sea and you'll drown. But Jesus can help you overcome your hardships if you go to him. Well, Peter started to walk out on the water, but he became distracted. He became distracted by the wind and the waves, and he began to sink. And so the outline follows, we too will sink if we get distracted by our hardships and take our eyes off Jesus. Charles Spurgeon summarizes the exchange by suggesting Peter thought too much of the wind and the waves, and he thought too little of the one who had the power to deliver him from trouble. 
Now that's, that's your basic outline that you will see most preachers give you from that little exchange between Jesus and Peter. And quite frankly, it's a good outline. It's a fitting outline. It's a helpful outline. But I want to be mindful that this exchange between Peter and Jesus only occurs in Matthew's Gospel. The fact that this exchange occurs in one Gospel tells me that this exchange is important for our consideration. But the fact that it occurs in only one of the three accounts tells me that this exchange is not the point of the story. That the primary thing we are to learn from this passage is not found in that exchange. In order to find out what is of primary importance, we need to draw from what is common to all three accounts. And what is common is the manner in which Jesus identifies himself. The manner in which Jesus identifies himself. To, to us in the English, we don't always catch it. He says, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Jesus is giving a very particular and personal introduction here. James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary says, what Jesus utters here is actually the personal name of God. He is identifying himself as the I am. I am here. He's identifying himself with God. That's the literal rendering of what Jesus says. And so we detect that the primary theme in this passage is this powerful portrayal of Jesus being God. That Jesus is not merely a man, although he is fully man. Jesus is God. Of course, he's done miracle after miracle. But it wasn't registering with the disciples who he was. Miracle after miracle. Paralytic healed, able to walk, blind man able to see, leper with beautiful skin, dead person brought back to life, hungry people fed, and the list goes on and on and on. Jesus had done so many things, but it had yet to register with the disciples exactly whom they were dealing with. It had yet to register with them that this was God. They still didn't get it. Now, if you're not familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures, we might not fully understand what I think Jesus was trying to convey by this particular miracle of walking on the water. Some of you might read that and, and we might think cynically, what a show-off. I mean, it was impressive enough that he fed 5,000 people. What's this running or walking on the water? What's this all about? But remember the men in the boat. These... These were men who would have been familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures. These would have been men who knew their Hebrew Bibles. They would have been familiar with what Job wrote about the Lord in his book. Job chapter 9 verse 8 where Job says, The Lord alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. The Lord alone stretches out the heavens. The Lord alone treads on the waves of the sea. 
Jesus is telling them something about who he is. It's another clue to this band of followers who still haven't figured it out. So he's fulfilling scripture time and time again. But the disciples are exhausted. It's three in the morning. They're anxious. They've been rowing for hours and they're still a long way from the shore. And they're terrified because they just witnessed somebody walking toward them on top of the water. Jesus calls out to them, It is I. It's me. And because I'm here, you have nothing to be afraid of. The primary message of this passage, it's basic, it's simple, but it's really encouraging. If Jesus is with you, if he is truly with you, if he is in your life, Jesus will take care of you. If Jesus is walking with you, if Jesus accompanies you, everything will work out in the end. And this is precisely what the disciples experienced that day. Look at verse 32. Matthew says, when they climbed into the boat, the wind and the waves died down. And the disciples finally get it. As we might say, the penny dropped. The light went on. And Matthew tells us in the next verse, those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. What is striking to me is how Jesus persists with these men in spite of how slow they are. And how slow they are to register who he is. I mean, let's let's say it like it is. These guys, the disciples were really slow. They were really slow to figure this out. Think of all that has gone before in Matthew's gospel leading up to this moment. The disciples had a front row seat for every miracle. It's not like they were off in the distance. It's not like they heard rumors about what this guy could do. They had a front row seat. They had the closest proximity to the miracles and the displays of power. And yet they were still very, very slow to believe. Very slow to understand what was going on. And yet Jesus, he would have, he would have been well within his rights to say, you guys are a bunch of dummies. You should have figured this out by now. I'm going to go find a new group of people to follow me. But he doesn't. He stays with these guys. He stays with them and he gets into their boat and calms the wind and the sea. And this encourages me greatly. It encourages me on a very personal level. It encourages me because when I'm honest with myself, I'm very slow to get it. When I scroll back over the course of my life, And I think of all the ways that God has interacted graciously in my life. 
how his providential hand has led me every step of the way, and how many times I fail to see it. I'm encouraged by the way Jesus deals with his followers, because I'm slow like them. I'm not that different from this band of anxious followers. And I wonder how different you are from them as well. So what's the lesson? What's the lesson? The great lesson is that Jesus, who is God, will never leave you on your own. Jesus, who is God's Son, will never leave you on your own. Now, we're never promised a life without storms. Don't be surprised when bad things happen. Jesus said, in this life, you will have trouble. Don't be surprised by the storms or the rough seas. But we have an opportunity to be under the watchful care of Him who stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. The seas in your life, the waters in your life might be rough at the moment, but you are in the presence of the one who treads on the waves of the sea. Now I look out here and and I realize I don't really know what's going on in your life. I know few of you well enough to know your trials and tribulations. I know few of you well enough to know the great burdens that you are bearing. Undoubtedly, some of you are here this morning and you're exhausted. You're exhausted because the circumstances in your life have beaten you down. Some of you are here this morning and you're anxious. You're trying to look ahead. You're trying to discern what your future will look like. And you can't see. You don't know what's ahead. And it makes you anxious. Some of us are just flat out terrified. Terrified by the predicament we are currently in. We're not sure of which way to go. Well, I want to encourage you this morning. I want to remind you this morning that we're here not worshiping or talking about a philosophical idea. We're talking about a personal God. A God who stood among us and said to his disciples, I'm here. Don't be afraid. It's me. I've got your back. I've got you covered. I love you. I chose you. And I'm going to help you get to the other side. I'm going to help you get to the other side. Friends, there is no shepherd like this shepherd. There is no king like this king. So whatever you are going through at the moment, it does not have to end badly. When the disciples rowed the boat, the waters were very rough. But when Jesus got into their boat, the waters calmed down. My plea to you, my plea to you is that you will call out to Jesus and you will ask him to climb into your boat. Of course, that's a metaphor. I'm asking that you call out to Jesus and ask him to climb into your life. 
Now some of you are thinking, well, I'm here, aren't I? I want you to engage Jesus in a relationship, not simply once a week, but moment by moment, hour by hour, we have a choice to make whether we're going to row this boat or whether we're going to let Jesus get us to the other side. And that's not just with the big things, that's with everything. We have really two options, at least two that I can see. One is we do it ourselves. That we pull up our bootstraps and we work harder and we get it done our way. We row the boat ourselves. That's option one. I've done that a thousand times and failed. So I recommend to you option two. Let Jesus get you to the other side. The waves and the storms of life need not ever overwhelm you. We are with the one who treads on the waves of the sea. Call upon Jesus and let him climb into your boat. The great I am is our friend. Amen.